Well, I think what we're finding is uh, XP works, lean programming works. Um, you know, something I like a lot about XP is let the team choose what they want to do rather than saying, okay, you're great at threading and you're great at databases and you're great at this, you're great at that. So you do this, you do this, you do this. How about, you know, break out the functionality um, and, and let the team choose what they want to do first. Uh, that seems to be uh, popular these days. Lean programming, as, uh, XP, um, aspect-oriented programming, cross-cutting. Oh, that's something, I don't know, I've read a couple of articles about that, but I'm not sure I, 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 I really get that. That's uh, a hard one to, that's a hard one to, um, I mean, I've, I've taken a number of runs at it, and the problem is I have to, I have to have sort of, it's, it's almost like when I'm figuring out generics and parameterized types and things, also not an easy thing to, to grasp at its root. Right. It has a surface to it. And the surface of, of cross-cutting is, well, there are things that you want to do across a bunch of your code. And so, you know, the, the, the example that they always give is um, yeah, like logging. Um, but I, another good example, which is more um, narrowed, is um, so, something transactional. Because you go, well, if I'm doing transactions, say I've got a, an object that everything it does has to be transactional, then what I want is uh, at the entry and exit point of every method, I want to begin and end a transaction, you know, do the necessary stuff. Um, well, wouldn't it be nice if I didn't have to do all that stuff by hand? If I could just say, I could just wave a wand and say, okay, add at the beginning and ending of each one of these things. So um, cross-cutting does that, but... See, there are other ways you can accomplish that, in, of course, in different languages. But um, so, as an example, in um, if you look at the, well, it's it's been up there for a long time. But if you look at thinking in Python, which you can download, I don't know when I'll finish it because I've got this stack of projects. But it's it's one of the more interesting things. One of the things that I did is I wanted to um, do some sort of synchronization, like we have in Java, in Python. Well, with the help of people in the Python community, I, I did this kind of thing using um, meta classes. Okay, so meta class, a class shows you how to create an, I mean, it, it's, it's a definition of how to create an object. Meta class is a definition of how to create a class. So by going into meta classes, you're able to manipulate these things and create classes differently. So if you say, for example, in my case, I go, you know, when I put the synchronized keyword here, I want to have um, entry and exit points. You know, I, I, it's, it's, basic, it's, it's similar to um, the, uh, the it's a transaction, okay? Because you, as you enter, you lock, as you leave, you unlock. Okay, so I was able to do that using meta classes. And so it is, it's sort of an aspecty thing, but meta classes are, uh, at least based on my understanding, significantly more powerful in what you can do, because you can do almost anything. I mean, you can do tons of stuff with meta classes, whereas aspects seem more narrow than that. And of course, maybe, I mean, the other problem with meta classes is that they're traditionally have been kind of confusing, and aspects may be more straightforward, and so it may be more accessible for people. But the other thing that, um, and this is in conversations with the creator of the nice language, he is planning on putting Lisp-style macros in. And the I mean, if you're coming from the C and C++ world, 
macro sounds like preprocessor macro is extremely limited, you know, it doesn't do very much at all, and it's clunky, and it's a different language, and there are all sorts of bad things you can say about macros. But from the Lisp world, macros apparently are these incredibly powerful things that allow you to do, you know, stuff that would be on par with um, meta classes and certainly cross-cutting. And so the, what um, Benoit, if I've got his name right, is talking about doing is is saying, um, okay, you know, we'll add this, and that'll give you that power and more, rather than saying, all right, um, here's cross-cutting, and it allows you to do these kinds of things. But, but it, you know, maybe it makes those things easier, but it's kind of, um, it seems kind of limited to me. But again, I'm, you know, I haven't seen everything you can do. Problem with it is that there's a lot of, there's a number of different implementations, and now. One of the concerns in the aspect community is that there is, um, with, with annotations, annotations have sort of an aspecty feel to them. They're not as fine-grained as aspects. The, well, less, I should say some aspect implementations, um, you know, where you can, you can put a cut point anywhere. Of course, you have to put the cut points in. Um, whereas with annotations, you can put an annotation on a class or a method or I've got this down right in the field. Um, I'm not sure about that. But anyway, at least classes and methods. So you could say, for example, you could say, I want to annotate this method so that it has it's transactional. And then you could have some sort of little doohickey that puts in the transaction stuff for you. So you'd say, for each one, you'd say at transaction, or however the annotation syntax goes. It's not on the tip of my tongue. So see, that's the kind of thing that, oh, well, that was in the aspect-oriented domain. And so maybe that's going to be challenging people who, I mean, I mean that, that may be challenging the way aspects work. The other problem with aspects, as I mentioned, is that there's a number of different implementations, and so it's not a standardized thing. So who knows what's going to happen with aspects, especially now with annotations and things people are doing with them. You know, another uh, very controversial subject. Um, is that all we're going to talk about today is controversial subjects? Oh, well, why not? You know, what the heck? But, you know, there's the open source movement, there's copyrights, there's... Uh, you know, there's there's stuff all about that whole bailiwick. Um, very often on projects, I'll I'll run into cases where, hey, you know, you can get an open source component, or you can buy the component. You can uh, you can go with uh, you know a, a a big name web server, or you can get an open source web server. Um, and in some cases, in you know your three, four, five, ten man shops, open source is great. Uh, you don't have to buy expensive licenses. You can su support it. You can build. You can build things around that. On the other hand, um, you know, with with the multinational, uh, publicly traded corporations, you know, a cheap piece of software or a free piece of software isn't really that important. Really, the support is important. Um, you know, having uh, 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 someone at a help desk that you can call accountability is important. Um, so. You know, do you, do you have any thoughts on uh, the open source movement, copyrights? How do you feel about that? Um, well, copyrights are clearly a big problem. I mean, it's 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 totally out of control, and uh, I hope I hope you know somebody does something about it. I'm certainly not an expert in that area, but it's it's clearly obvious that that it's gone wrong. Um, open source, I think is, I mean, what's great about it is that it's an option. 
In other words, you can, you, you know, it's, it's another possible place to get uh, code and, and solutions. And just like commercial software, it can be very good or it can be um, very moder you know, not so good. And, um, and I think, as you say, the question is um, the, kind of, what, well, what sort of support are you going to get from this? Or, I mean, do you need support? Is this something, like there are some modules that you can just get off of the um, Apache. I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of uh, additional Java modules that you can get from the Apache, I forget what the Jakarta not oh yeah maybe it's called Jakarta something anyway you know so so if you don't if the the standard Java library doesn't have what you need you can go hunting around here and um, and those things are typically small enough that hey if something goes wrong you can go in and figure you know you can maintain it yourself or you can send an email to somebody when you get into things like that are bigger then you probably want well okay JBoss is an example all right so this is a definitely significantly complex piece of software but you can pay those guys for support and you know it's pretty good Linux uh, IBM gives support some of these other companies give support so I think the support issue is now being seen I mean there's a lot of adjustment that's going on here and so it's it you know I think there needs to be a financial model for a lot of these things and well for example I'm looking at source code formatters well there's um, for Java and there's a number of free ones, and then there's Jalopy. Jalopy costs all of 40 bucks, but the guy, this is his job, and so he's there to support you and, you know, make things work right and et cetera, because, I mean, he's getting money for it. He wants to improve it to make it better to sell it more people. And 40 bucks, you know, that's, that's accessible for anybody, and, um, and it does a really nice job, so it's worth paying money for. And, and you know, maybe it's just a matter of, of finding the right price for some of these things, um, and and you know the price maybe it is it, probably a lot of things that just have to settle down. But um, the nice thing about the open source is that you have the option of trying it out, the whole thing seriously, and if it if it works for you and you don't your company or your organization doesn't have much money, you can still use it. You know. It, it opens up a lot of doors, and in the meantime, people are getting experience on it. They go someplace maybe that does have some money. Maybe more money can flow to the people who are working on it. I mean, I think, I do think that it's important that we have. I mean, there's the volunteer software, but um, if somebody doesn't have a way to make some money off of it, mm, it's a problem. I think it. I think they're, you know, whether it's open source or not. Um, at some point, if it's going to be used in a serious way, then um, we need to figure out better ways to, to get money to people. Because, hey, it's really worth your while. Um, so anyway, that's, that's about as much as... I mean, Eric Raymond is the guy to talk to for all of the, the, the serious political issues about open source. The, the, I, the cathedral and the bazaar. Of course, yes, that. and Yeah, he was supposed to put out another paper, gosh, a year or two ago. I don't know what happened to that. I think he got distracted, but um, yeah. But Eric's the guy for for all for for the for the real politics of what's going on. Man, it, that's just too much noise for me. Now, another another thing we we have touched on in the past is uh, is design the design process 
the program artifacts that you come up with during the design process, uh, the unified modeling language, uh, the unified process, um, you know, UML, uh, sequence diagrams, the whole, um, the whole bunch of diagrams that you come up with when you're doing a design. I wonder if you have any um, favorites or any, any favorite approaches, um, you know, chalk on chalkboard, uh, collaborative sessions, um, index cards, that sort of thing, um, you know. Yeah, I end up, I seem to end up, well, Bill Venters and I gave a seminar that we recorded on DVD and it's being produced now. Oh, cool. And um, so it'll be out, you know, let's just say a few months probably. Oh, is, what is what seminar was that? It was the Designing Objects and Systems Seminar. Oh, and right, we've been okay. giving that for several years. And this, I'm, I feel like this is our best one, whether it was because we had a camera pointed at us or not, I don't know. But, um, but one of the things that we did is be, some of the students challenged us. And that made it really interesting. And they said, they said, well, you're, you're telling us about all these different methods and waving your hands about them and, and everything. And that's all interesting. But you know what? We'd like to see what you do under Ooh. pressure. Ooh. And so they actually gave us a design. And Bill and I had a different ways of approaching it you know, based on our, our particular natures. But it was really interesting to see what do you do when um, push comes to shove and you're under fire. Right. And what I, what I did is I went to the whiteboard and I started drawing, um, well, basically blobs. They weren't, they weren't booch clouds, but they were, they were basically circles, you know, the equivalent of UML squares, and there might have even been some squares there. But, it, but this is even at a higher level than that. This isn't necessarily saying um, we've got, because a, a class structure diagram assumes that you, you have I mean, it's actually a little more detailed than you want to be when you're just kind of brainstorming the system. So most of mine, it was, it was closer to a mind map, which is, right. which is just, you know, you, 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 I mean, the basic idea is you have a circle and you draw a word around it, you draw a line to something else. Well, my lines were a little more meaningful. But, um, but I was just saying, all right, well, let's think of, of what kind of classes. It's, it's probably closer to, to doing CRC cards than anything else. Because with CRC cards, you're just saying, well, what kind of classes we would have? So for each card, it's going, to be a, it's going to have a class, and it's going to have some methods in it. But in my case, it was up on a whiteboard, and there was some um, indications of connections between classes. And I actually felt pretty comfortable with that. I felt like that worked out pretty well, because if something belonged in something else, or there, you know, there were too many or not enough or whatever, I could just erase that part and everybody in the room could see it and I think maybe that was um, kind of important because then you get feedback and, and people can see what's happening whereas with CRC cards um, if you've just got a few people around a table that's okay but the thing that I miss about them is that they don't have that sense of connection which you have on on the board and I think that's even better than, you know, I mean, the, the other option would be to have a projector and, you know, some sort of a tool that would allow you to build these diagrams. But then I think you're slowed down with, well, maybe the right term is the artifact. You're, you're slowed down with saying, okay, well, now we have to make this little square and we take a second. And the whole brainstorming process kind of gets um, sidetracked with the tool and the artifact. Whereas if you're just, if you've just got a big piece of butcher paper or a big whiteboard or whatever, you can just go. 
and if you're not really worrying about and that's the thing that I find is is really hard for maybe it's just us as programmers because we like to think in the terms of our programming language or our tools or whatever and because there's a certain satisfaction in saying okay I'll put this inside of this you know there of, of the actual doing and the fitting the pieces together right you know that's a lot of times that's the part where you get the real kind of you get in the flow and the satisfaction and everything whereas figuring this stuff out even though I guess I've done it enough that I um, I, I mean for me that's that's in the flow but um, but I think you know maybe it's it's easier to fall into the okay let's let's play with the um, play with the pieces and the, the this you know the system that we're putting together you know it's we we like to program and that's that's putting the jigsaw puzzle together and um, figuring out what the puzzle is that's that's harder that is hard so yeah so I would say. Um, so, so the reason that I use kind of just circles and blobs up on the board is to to keep us from getting too down into the details too early because then you lose the, the sort of spontaneous let's look at the big picture and see what all the pieces are. Right. The model-driven architecture movement. Well, um, I'm going to defer to Martin Fowler on that one. The interview that I have with him that's coming out on this CD is... Um, um, I asked him about model-driven architecture because he had looked at it more than I have. The, the thing that I referred to is, well, I mean, you could look at the 4GL um, movement that happened, kind of came up and fizzled pretty quickly some number of years ago. But even more, I remember when Borland bought a little company that had come out with a tool called, um, what was it called? Object vision, I think it was. Okay. I think that's what it was called. But anyway, the idea was that you were going to program by moving objects around on the screen. And what was interesting is, in vague terms, it, it worked okay. But as soon as you got to, like, a for loop, it was way harder because you had to draw this picture and make these things. It was way harder to do a for loop than simply type it in. And I always remember that when I'm thinking about these magical systems that's supposed, that are supposed to do all the work for you. And, and certainly I like looking at these, I mean, for example, one of the reasons I like Python is that it does a lot of work for you. But the point, the level at which the expression happens is really important. And this object vision anyway just was immediately you know, I looked at it and I could immediately see this is the wrong thing to do because, well, I think because the awkwardness of expression that it had. And, and this is some of the problems that I have with Java is that some of the things just require too darn much typing. You know, some people say, well, I, you know, they'll go, well, Eclipse will type all that stuff for me. Yes, Eclipse will write all that code for you, but it will not read all that code for you. And you, you, you know, code is read more than it is written, especially when you have to maintain it. And Eclipse isn't going to help you there. So, so that is one of the problems that I have with Java is just too verbose. And this was in a different way. It just it didn't it, it let you express yourself cleanly. Um, Martin's take on model-driven architecture, I think, is just that. Um, 
Well, I think it, I think the problem is is that the the when you when you abstract, you have to throw away certain detail, and um, UML is is good because it's high level, but um, but it has actually thrown away a lot of detail that you would you would have to inject sometime later in order to make this thing work, and. Um, and it could just run into the same problem as object vision had, which is, okay, how do you inject that detail? Well, um, you know, do we end up drawing diagrams? Do we end up doing anything? Or do we just, I mean, you know, if you simply insert pieces of code there, well, maybe it'll work. You know, maybe, maybe if I could just say, okay, this class is this, and then here's a method. And, and if, it is, if it is actually doing a lot of work for me and not getting in the way, but I, I don't know how they're, they're implementing these things. I don't, I don't know what the deal is. Okay, so you were, yeah, I mean, the other thing you were talking about here was artifacts, and I, I think that's a really important issue because a lot of this turmoil started because of the belief in the value of artifacts. I mean, we're, we're talking back in the 70s with the so-called software crisis, and we're still dealing with procedural programming there, and the conclusion that somebody came to was that the reason software doesn't work or isn't successful, et cetera, is because we don't have enough documentation. If we had documentation, then people could go in and figure out what was the problem. So, so we ended up with this kind of drive towards documentation. Then, you know, years later, people started figuring out that, well, you can have too much documentation, and too much means that it's, it's sort of write-only, and people don't read it. And I, I went through this myself. I mean, I learned all about the procedural programming. I, I I read books by people that I later met about, you know, how to how to do all of that, all that stuff, and I did it myself. You know, I created various different documents and everything, and I discovered that people on the project were not reading the documents. And I think so. What the Agile movement did is that, well, some branches of the Agile movement, um, they have gone to the other extreme and saying, well, let's just throw away the artifacts as fast as we possibly can because the true artifact is the code. Right. And the code should be where you... And, and in the end, well, yes, the, the, the artifact is the code. I mean, that, that's the most important thing, and that's why the other artifacts don't get maintained. The code has to go through the compiler, has to work, it's the thing that you work on. Now, whether the, the, you know, the question is, have they gone too far in throwing away all the artifacts? Okay, we'll make some CRC cards, now we'll turn that into code, we'll throw away the CRC cards. You know, that's hard to say. Um, one, one way of looking at it is to say, all right, if we've got the code and now we've got tools that'll take code and turn it into UML diagrams, wouldn't that be better than trying to maintain the UML diagrams by hand? Hmm. Well, that's, that's an interesting argument. Um, still, it usually seems like, I, I think maybe what'll happen, and it'll probably swing back and forth, but I think will go from saying, well, you know, the code is the only important artifact, to saying, well, there's probably some other things, and maybe it'll just come down to what is it that you're actually maintaining? Well, the user manual. You gotta maintain the user manual, and that's, that's, a, that's an important artifact. That's gotta go beyond the code, and that's gotta be something that, that is connected to. So you gotta maintain that. Um, there might be some other documentations that you have to actually maintain, 
and perhaps everything else, if it, if it isn't getting actively maintained, well, it's going to get stale, so you should proactively throw it away. Um, so probably we'll, we'll reach, you know, I would think we would, we would eventually, through experimentation, reach a middle ground to say, um, you know, what, what is it that we have to maintain? I mean, one of the problems that we've seen with Javadoc is that it doesn't get maintained, even though, and this was a theory that I put out years ago, before all this stuff was happening. I don't know if that's where some of these ideas came from or not, but it was published in, in uh, magazines and things. So, so I, th I said, you know, instead of having the documentation separate from the code, why don't we bind it together with the code? Well, that's what Javadoc does. Well, so my theory about that may not be entirely you know, valid because we find that, well, the Javadoc gets out of sync, even though it's right there. So when the person changes the code, they could change the Javadoc. So what does this mean? Do we need better um, binding? You know, do we need some sort of a tool that checks the binding? It's like, oh, you've changed the method. Have you changed the Javadoc? Well, then people could, you know, maybe disable that or something. It, it, it's hard to know if there's any you know, real solution to this. So, you know, I think it, it's psychology it comes down to, to that you have to say you know, what are one of the things that I find is really interesting that happens again and again is I get these grand ideas in my head and I have a fantasy about how things are going to work well for example if we put documentation together with code then we'll get much better documentation and perhaps we have you know if you look at if you if you hunt through the Java docs for the JDK well, there's a lot of really good information there, and maybe some of it gets out of sync a little bit. Maybe it doesn't get out of sync nearly as much as um, things did before that. So maybe it is. Maybe it has really turned out to be a good idea. But um, Martin Fowler and I have been putting on a little meeting for the last few years. It's an invitational thing, and um, it came from me fantasizing about putting on a conference. And so I would tell people about this idea, and I had this idea of what would have to be done, and it was kind of large scale. And Martin says, why don't we do a little experiment? Does that mean you're out of disk space? No. Why don't we do a little experiment? And so we did, and it was great. And so um, I've, I've tried to remind myself of that periodically, say, instead of creating this grand scheme in my mind, which you could argue that a software project is a grand scheme and we'll, we'll do the entire architecture and it'll all work wonderfully. One of the really great things about um, XP is their emphasis on doing these little experiments. Okay, well, let's do something and, and we'll get something working in two weeks. It won't be everything, but right. it'll be something and we'll be able to handle people and go, hey, how do you like this? And then we'll do another two weeks and we'll get something else working. And the feedback that you get from that is so valuable because I, I usually find that when I do the experiment, suddenly I see the whole issue completely differently once I start getting feedback. And so um, I think you know that that could be kind of the key important thing that that ex, well agile methods have brought to us is this idea of a, let's take little steps and see what happens, and then and see where we are, and then decide where we're going to step next. That's huge, and boy, it's hard to do, especially when we you know, hatch grand schemes in our head. Well, I hope to uh, I hope to see some of this uh, articulated on MindView.net in your uh, your weblog, maybe in an article, or maybe on uh, your new blog, uh, 
logger. Um, if, if that works out. If that works out. Um, but, uh, but in the meantime, I think it's time for a Camp 4 coffee. <laughs>